A Memphis mom was murdered by a man who should have been in jail. The Tennessee town is right now riddled with crime and chaos. So what policies are causing this and how should Christians respond to these tragedies? 9-11 reminds us the country we grew up in is not coming back. And actually, that might be a good thing. I'll explain why. The Queen of England is dead. What should we make of the criticisms of her and her reign? Was she just an evil colonizer or a steady symbol of Christian hope? Father Calvin Robinson will help us answer those questions. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. If you have not listened to yesterday's episode, it was a replay episode of an interview I did last year with someone who survived the attack on the Pentagon in 9-11. And we specifically talked about his ability to and his desire to, through Christ, forgive the terrorists who attacked the Pentagon and caused him to suffer all of the wounds, both emotional and physical, that he has suffered all of these years. Hard to believe that it has been 21 years. It's hard to believe for me that I can remember something that happened 21 years ago, and yet I do very vividly. I remember sitting in my fourth grade classroom, so I was nine years old, and I remember exactly what my teacher was wearing. She had black and white pants on. She had a black shirt. I remember the lump in her throat as she passed out these little enveloped letters for us to give to our parents when we went home, and our parents would open up those letters and read them to us. And I remember my mom doing that in the kitchen and telling us that there had been an attack. There had been plane crashes. Of course, in my nine-year-old mind, I didn't fully understand what was happening. I grew up in Dallas, major city. And then because we just didn't know if there was still a threat of more attacks, if we would have to leave the major cities and go somewhere more remote. And so there were a lot of questions, a lot of confusion for me at the time. And yet somehow my little mind grasped in the same way that I'm sure yours did too, if you were about that age, that something monumental was happening, that there was a shift going on, that this wasn't just Uh, an accident. This wasn't just another political moment. I remember the political moments surrounding uh, the election that happened right before that with Bush v. Gore. That's probably my first political memory that I have. And of course, I knew my nine-year-old self somehow understood that this was much bigger than an election, that this was um, much more impactful than that. And I remember the camaraderie, the united patriotism that we felt afterwards. I remember the respect that people had for our leaders and the renewed love that people had for our country. And that quickly faded after 9-11. But I remember those ensuing moments. And the fact is, is that we do not live in the same country that you and I grew up in. We just don't. And I know this is going to sound really pessimistic, and I'll bring us back up into a little more optimism in a second, but I don't think that we will ever go back. 
I don't think that we will ever have the America of the 1980s or the 1990s. It's strange to think that after a terrorist attack and after such a contentious election, it's strange to say that that time was a lot simpler and that we were somehow more united. And yet that's true. And I know some of us long to go back to that time. Some of us long to go back to the America in which we grew up. And yet I do think it's time for us to forsake that nostalgia and come to terms with the fact that we just are not where we were. The moral, political, cultural, social, uh, sexual revolutions have gone full steam ahead for the past 20 years so that we do not look like the same country that we did 20 years ago. Our differences as Americans run really deep because they're not just political. They're not just about who we should elect. They're not just about policy, but they're really worldview disagreements. We disagree on issues of biblical proportions. We disagree on reality itself. We disagree on how to define what a woman is. I don't know how you come back from that. Save a great awakening. Save God's grace pouring out on this country and manifesting itself and people opening their eyes to what is good and right and true. And here's where the optimism comes in. I think that that can happen. I believe that God can do that if he wants to. I believe that God can be merciful. He can bring people to himself. He can strengthen the church. He can raise up bold, courageous, good, righteous, just leaders. I mean, we never thought that Roe v. Wade would get overturned. We never thought that that would happen. We just said, no, America is just hurtling Uh, closer and closer to hell. We're just going to hell in a handbasket. Things are only going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. There will be no instance of true righteousness or justice. And yet God in his mercy allowed Roe v. Wade to be overturned. That is the result, yes, of God's providence, but also 50 years of courageous and consistent and persistent activism by pro-lifers who didn't care about the persecution, who didn't care about the pushback, saw the goal that they had in their sights to do everything they can to save unborn children by changing the law to conform to that which is just. And here we are. Here we are in the wake of the Dobbs decision, Roe v. Wade being overturned. And because of that, now there are states doing more than they've ever been able to to protect the lives of vulnerable, unborn children. We never thought that that could happen. And yet things changed. Things changed for the better because of the bravery of people, because of the boldness of people who are willing to raise a respectful ruckus for the things that matter, because of people who understood that politics matter, because policy matters, because people matter, and they fought and they spoke and they lived like it. And because of the grace and the sovereignty and the mercy of God, that happened. Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so I think it is possible for our country to change for the better. But we need to realize that doesn't mean going back to the 70s or 80s or 90s or whenever you think that our heyday was. Because really, if you trace a lot of the problems that we have, whether it's gender ideology, whether it's selling our jobs over to China, whether it is the communism that seems to pervade our public education system or our um, academic system or higher education system, all of those problems really started 
in the age that we look back and think was the golden age, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, they hadn't manifested themselves as wickedly as they have today. Um, But as we've talked about many times on this podcast, a lot of these ideologies started gaining traction, at least in academic circles, 50 years ago. So I'm not really interested in going backward. I'm interested in going forward. It is a new day. It is a new era. This is a new America. We have new problems. We have new issues. We have different kinds of disagreements today. We're a different kind of people than our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation. There's a lot of bad aspects to that, but I refuse to believe that that is accidental. I refuse to believe that God placed us here arbitrarily. I don't know the fate of America. I don't. I don't think that there is some special promise that God placed in the nooks and crannies of the Bible for, you know, uh, American ultimate victory and sovereignty over the world. I don't think that America is God's chosen country. All, all I know is that God can use brave, strong, faithful Christians to better the country in which he has providentially and purposely placed them. And I believe that that is part of our role. I don't believe that our primary job as Christians is to be political activists. I don't believe that the primary way to love your neighbor is simply to vote for a candidate with good policies, but it is a way, just as Israel uh, was in exile in Jeremiah 29 and God commanded them to seek the welfare of the city in which God had placed him. So I think Christians today, if we're to abide by that same principle, should seek the welfare, the well-being of the city, of the places, of the communities in which God has placed us. And I do believe that maybe not in our lifetimes, but maybe in our children's lifetimes or in our grandchildren's lifetimes, that the consequences of our faithful advocacy for that which is good and right and true can manifest itself in really good things. I believe in the possibility of a great awakening. I do. It's not going to look exactly like it did right after 9-11. Maybe it can be better. Maybe we can build a better country than the one that we grew up in. It's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take putting the right people in charge, but it's also going to take a lot of consistency at the grassroots level. And I know that a lot of you out there, especially you moms, are doing just that. So thank you. Keep going. Let 9-11 just be um, a reminder of that which we are fighting for and pushing towards for our kids and for our grandkids. All right. I want to get into some of the absolutely tasteless reactions from the people in charge um, to 9-11 and, and what that means for us is those who are opposing the ideology, the progressive, the secular progressive ideology of those in charge in just one second. But first, let me tell you about our first sponsor for the day, and that is My Patriot Supply. All right. We don't know the future. We kind of just talked about that. We don't really know what is going to happen, especially with food shortages and food supplies. So you just want to make sure that your family is taken care of as much as possible. That's why you need to check out My Patriot Supply at preparewithally.com. You can get a three-month food kit that is good for 
decades and decades. You just put it in your pantry. You can put it in your laundry room and then you have it when you need it. I would go ahead and buy a food kit for everyone in your family. These meals actually taste good. They will sustain you and they will give you all the nutrition that you need in case food shortages really just hit the fan. So go to preparewithally.com right now. You'll save $250 when you do. Go to preparewithally.com, preparewithally.com. All right, so our beloved vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, was uh, in an interview, doing an interview with Chuck Todd of MSNBC on Meet the Press over the weekend. And he, in his question, compared 9-11, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, to the supposed attacks on our democracy by Americans here in the United States. Here's what VP Harris said. Look, we're at the 21st um, marking, if you will, of the September 11th attacks. Yeah. This was a foreign terrorist attacking our democracy, yeah. attacking this country. Yeah. We're now, as a nation, battling a threat from within. Is the threat hmm. equal or greater than what we faced after 9-11? That's an interesting question. Um, I have held many elected offices as district attorney, attorney general, senator, now vice president, and there's an oath that we always take which is to defend and uphold our Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We don't compare the two in the oath, but we know they both can exist and we must defend against it. Oh, all right. You, you know that we launched a war to kill the foreign enemies that attacked us on 9-11. And in light of President Biden's speech, which we analyzed last week, go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Like, what do you think? What do you think they're alluding to? What do you think that they are actually implying here? I mean, remember, President Biden, against the blood red wall behind him, flanked by members of our military, said that, quote unquote, MAGA Republicans are an enemy to the republic, are a threat to democracy. And he tried to say, oh, they're just fringe Republicans. But then in the next breath, he contradicts himself by describing who these so uh, supposed extremist Republicans are, people who are pro-life, people who basically disagree with his regime. Um, so here is Vice President Harris doubling down on that, doubling down on what the MSNBC commentators have been saying recently, that apparently we're already in a civil war. Again, we talked about that last week. Kathy Griffin, Griffith Griffin, I can never remember. She's a comedian and she tweeted last week, if you want a civil war, don't vote for Democrats. If you, or if you want a civil war, then you should vote Republican. If you don't want a civil war, vote Democrats. What's that supposed to mean? Is that a threat? That if people vote Republican and Republicans take over both the House and the Senate, that Democrats are going to launch a civil war on MSNBC last week, they said they think the civil war has already started. Yeah, we've already seen that with the DOJ going after Biden's political opponents. Tristan Snell, he is a lawyer. He prosecuted Trump University. 
Uh, he's a former assistant attorney general for New York State, commentator for MSNBC and CNN. He tweeted yesterday, September 11th was a terrorist attack. January 6th was a terrorist attack. So we're supposed to, you see, we're supposed to draw an equivalence here. So the people who rioted, and that's what I call it. I think it's a, a riot. Um, the people who rioted on January 6th, who did not kill anyone, who were unarmed, I'm not defending a lot of the things that I saw, a lot of the violence that I saw. I think it's inexcusable. But we're talking about unarmed people rioting, not killing anyone, versus foreign terrorists who murdered almost 3,000 people. So tell me how these things are the same. Tell me how these things are the same. Like you've seen some of the people that have gotten prosecuted for just being there on January 6th. I mean, we're talking about grandparents. We're talking about nonviolent offenders. We're talking about people who maybe shouldn't have been doing certain things, getting the book thrown at them when literal murderers are walking the streets in Democrat cities in the name of social justice. So tell me again how these two things are the same. Oh, and by the way, Apparently, the Biden administration, uh, CBS News confirmed this, that military prosecutors and defense attorneys, rather, are negotiating potential plea deals that could take the death penalty off the table for the five defendants accused in the 9-11 attacks. That is the definition of injustice. So on the 21st anniversary of 9-11, we're hearing that military prosecutors are trying to get a lighter sentence, a lighter punishment for the terrorists that murdered thousands and thousands of people, thousands and thousands of innocent Americans. My only question is, why are they still alive? Why have they been allowed to breathe all of these years? The only just consequence to that of that kind of crime is the death penalty. And as we'll talk about in a minute, really the only just punishment for any murder that is proven um, is the death penalty. And right now, they're trying to get a lighter sentence for these terrorists who murdered thousands of people. It's really amazing just how our morality and our sense of justice in this country has completely crumbled. And look, being declared enemies of the state by these kinds of people who really have no sense of justice means that we're living through really scary times. You who thought that you were just living a normal, quiet, productive life by working hard, raising a family, going to church, helping your community because you vote Republican, because you're against abortion, because you oppose the gender mutilation of children, you are considered a domestic enemy of the state by this administration and their cronies in the media. And again, do not think that they distinguish between you and those who rioted on January 6th. Biden made clear in that speech that he considers pro-lifers to be extreme. This administration has already declared their intent to go after concerned parents at school board meetings who take issue with their children seeing pornography at the school library. When they said extreme, radical, threat, a domestic threat to the Constitution, they mean you and me. Those of us who simply believe the things that Christians for thousands of years have believed about the sacredness of human life, the reality of male and female, the role of parents and the family versus the state. We, they say, who, are, who live quiet and peaceful lives are the threat, even as they have nothing to say 
about the consistent and destructive political violence on their own side, even as they work hand in glove with major corporations like Google and Facebook and and Twitter to punish speech that they find disagreeable. And as I said last week, in a sense, they are right. Even though you are a peaceful person, you are a threat because you are a threat to secular progressivism by standing again for that which is good. And that which is right, that which is true, by simply teaching your children what is right, by pushing back against the darkness in every sphere you occupy, whether it's at work or at school, you are a threat to the dark and destructive ideology that the ruling class represents. So you should just embrace that. Look, Christians have always been a hindrance to tyranny. We have always been a boil on the back of dictators. We have always been an obstacle for totalitarians, both privately and publicly. Christians throughout history have defied the fascists and the communists and the wicked monarchs and the powerful oppressors. Our strategy of opposition will change in America as the moment demands. But if there is one thing you must never do in an age of intense hostility against the truth, that is lie. Do not lie. If there's nothing else that you can do, do not lie. Never say something or affirm something that is not true just to make your life easier. Root yourself in what is true as a Christian. That in itself is opposition to the totalitarian depravity of today. Root yourself in that which is biblically true, morally true, factually true, and do not swerve from it. Remember, two and two will always make four. You remember the 19, the end of 1984 when Winston finally gave in to Big Brother's determination of what reality is, even though he really knew it wasn't true? Don't do it. Don't give in. Two and two will always make four. Make sure you know it. Make sure your children know it. All right. I want to talk about what's going on in Memphis right now and what our response should be to that. But first, let me tell you about our next sponsor for the day, and that is Relief Band. So Relief Band is just awesome technology, especially for those of you who, like me, are a little skeptical of all of the uh, prescriptions and different kinds of recommendations that we get from the medical industry when it comes to treating things like nausea. This is a drug-free solution for those of you who are dealing with things like morning sickness or motion sickness, or maybe um, anxiety makes you nauseous, or you're just dealing with any kind of nausea, you need to try Relief Band. Relief Band is just a band that you wear on your wrist, and it simulates a nerve that tells your brain uh, to communicate to your stomach to stop getting nauseous. It is the is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting. Uh, they started by trying this on patients about 20 years ago who were getting nauseous from chemotherapy, and it really works. My sister-in-law suffers from motion sickness, and she said that this has worked for her. So try it out if that's uh, something that you are suffering from and you don't want the side effects of another drug in your system. Go to reliefband.com. Use our promo code Allie for 20% off plus free shipping. That's R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Use our promo code Allie for 20% off plus free shipping. Reliefband.com and promo code Allie. All right. I want to talk a little bit about what is going on in Memphis. As you guys know, we briefly talked about this 
last week, um, a woman by the name of Eliza Fletcher. She was a preschool teacher in Memphis, a mom of two young boys, a wife. She was abducted and killed while on her morning run um, by a man by the by a man by the name of Cleotha Abstin Henderson. He has now been charged with her kidnapping and murder. He had been released four years early after serving 20 years of a 24 year sentence in the May 2000 abduction and robbery of attorney Kemper Durant. And, you know, last week, I said that this I don't know that this was a result of social justice or soft on crime policies because this man who abducted her had been 16 in 2000 when he committed his crime. He served about 20 years of his 25-year sentence. Um, And so that seems to be a, a just consequence for the crime that he committed. But after thinking about it and researching it, really... It is an issue of being soft on crime. Tennessee actually just passed a law that just went into place that says that all violent criminals have to serve 100% of their sentence because that wasn't happening, especially in liberal cities like Memphis. Had this guy not been released, had he been able to or been forced to serve out his full sentence, Eliza would still be alive. Now, maybe there are other problems with our justice system. You could say, well, he just would have murdered someone else later on. Maybe. We don't know that. The fact of the matter is he should have stayed in prison for as long as possible and Eliza would still be living and these boys would still have a mother. Now, this is not the only thing that has gone on. This is not the only tragedy that has gone on in Memphis over the past few days. There uh, there was a mom and her one-year-old baby who were abducted from Target and were forced to go to an ATM, get out hundreds of dollars, and actually the kidnappers brought them back to Target, thank God. And then there was a, a man going on a shooting spree in Memphis. He actually fled Memphis. I think he made his way to Arkansas that killed several people, including a young woman, including a mom of young children. And when they took him in, they finally did catch him and arrest him. He grinned for his mugshot. So just really ugly, evil stuff. And now the Memphis PD is looking for two black males between the ages of 18 and 21. That's what the description says that videoed themselves saying white folks fixing to not like black people. They're fixing to be marching by the riverside. White lives matter. He already shot an old man. I'm fixing to shoot an old white lady. One of the men was arrested on September 10th. His name is Reginald Williams. And so we've got a lot of problems going on in Memphis. And now people who have lived in Memphis for a long time can tell you that this city has had problems for a while, maybe for decades, but they've just gotten worse and worse. I went to school in South Carolina. It's pretty uh, common for people in Tennessee, Nashville, and in Memphis to go to the school Furman that I attended. So I had a few friends that grew up in Memphis, and they they told me then that there were only parts of Memphis that were really considered safe and that a large portion of the city you just couldn't go to. And Tucker Carlson made the point on his show, which I thought was really good, last week when he was talking about the Eliza Flesher tragedy that there should be nowhere in the United States where you cannot go outside where there sh- it shouldn't be commonplace for us to say oh you can't walk there without getting murdered or raped 
oh, you can't go on a run at that time of night because you might get kidnapped and killed. That's something that you should be afraid of, perhaps, in a third world country. That is not something that we should fear in the United States of America. And yet we do. We've just accepted it. We've just decided, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's just how it is. Those are the other side of the tracks. And you just can't go over there because you might get sexually assaulted and you might not make it back alive. We've just accepted that as normal. And it shouldn't be. These are the results in a lot of ways of policy. Now, not all evil is the result of politicians. It's not like we can... Um, you know, uh, construct a society in which sin doesn't exist. Sin, of course, is pre-civilizational, but we can put laws and policies in place that disincentivize people as much as possible to commit these kinds of atrocities. And in a place like Memphis, which has been run by liberals for a very long time, you just don't have those kinds of safeguards in place. If we look at some of the people who run the city, uh, the mayor, Jim Strickland, he's a Democrat. Uh, violent crime has only gotten worse under his watch. If you look at the city council, it has four, uh, four conservative members, but nine progressive members. The district attorney for Shelby County is Stephen Mulroy. He is a progressive. Uh, he previously was on the Shelby County Commission and he championed and uh, an animal welfare ordinance, not saying that's bad, but I mean, just look on, look on the, look at the priority list here. He also ran and won on the promise to implement quote unquote restorative justice practices. Yeah. What that means is soft on crime. And here we go. Here's what he believes. This is what's causing all these soft on crime policies and social justice policies that are actually killing people in Democrat run cities across the country. He said, if we can reduce the systemic discrimination that occurs in our system and reduce the burden on innocent people and restore the public's trust and the fairness of our system in the community, especially the African-American community, will cooperate with law enforcement and provide tips and witnesses and reports crimes. I promise you that that is not how it's going to go. And that might sound good. That might sound just and fair. But I assure you, it translates in to just being soft on crime, letting people out of prison, letting people out of jail, setting low, uh, setting low bails just to try to meet some kind of equity racial quota. The police chief, he is the past president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Um, he testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the matter of police reform after the George Floyd incident. Um, he was appointed to the Racial Equity and Criminal Justice Task Force. I'm not saying that all of these policies and programs are universally bad. I am saying that obviously the priorities are not straight in the city of Memphis. Crime is being incentivized. The punishments aren't harsh enough and the innocent people aren't being protected. And therefore, the pockets of safety, the pockets of safety are getting smaller and smaller. There are some policies, specific policies. Inmates are first eligible for release or parole after 20 percent of the actual sentence is imposed minus the credits such as good behavior or work credits. That's why this Cleotha guy was out because he got out of prison early for, quote unquote, good behavior. Um and, and then, as I said, this new law, this truth in sentencing now uh, forces these kinds of inmates to 
to serve their 100% of their sentencing, but that wasn't in place when this guy got out of jail and was able to murder this young mom. So here's the deal. My heart hurts for Eliza and the pain that she endured. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know her, but it's easy as a young mom of two kids myself to see myself reflected in her. And that's not to make it about me. I think that's human nature that is part of healthy empathy. It's easy for me to look at her life and to see my babies reflected in her babies, to see my husband reflected in hers. And therefore, it's not at all difficult to imagine what this family must be going through, to imagine the fear and the pain that she felt when she was being kidnapped and murdered and how confused and distraught her boys must be. And we should be praying for this family, that the community of God would rally around them, that somehow the gospel would be shown and that God would bring good things out of this because only he can do that. And I pray that this murder, that he would come to know Christ through the gospel and that he and Eliza would be worshiping in heaven together forever. The gospel can do that. God can do that. God's grace can do that. And I hope, I hope that that's what happens. And I'm also, I'm thankful for the Memphis community, how they are coming together. There was kind of a vigil type run where they finished Eliza's run uh, last week in her honor. And so I'm thankful uh, for how the people of God and how the church and how this community is already showing up. So I'm praying for them and I am hoping that God is glorified through this. But I also hope that this is a wake-up call for people for a few reasons. And let me just say this, and I know this kind of offends people, but look, social justice kills. It kills. It is not just. And here's what I mean, is that this aspect of social justice as criminal justice reform, and that typically means a lot of things, but most of it has to do with letting criminals out of jail before they should be out of jail. This is done in the name of racial justice because, just to put it, put it plainly, there are a disproportionate number of black people in jail. So in order to create so-called equity, which progressives have defined as equal outcomes, in order to lower the rate of black people in jail and make it closer to the proportion of white people in jail, soft on crime policies are adopted because, unfortunately, there is a disproportionate number of black men that commit violent crimes. It is completely disproportionate to their population side. This is all uh, uh, population size. This is all according to FBI crime data. And also an uncomfortable truth is that according to this data, it is far more likely for the kinds of crimes that we saw against Eliza, black on white crime to occur than on the other way around. And the reason why I bring that up is to just show the duplicity of our national narrative about right and wrong and about crime. Uh, her murder is not going to spark a national conversation about white victimization. Like, do you see your favorite Christian influencers talking about the need for racial reconciliation because of what happened to Eliza and doing the work and injustice and systemic oppression? Do you see people trying to put the guilt on other black people because of what happened to Eliza? Did she get a social media post from the people who are always ready to jump on any false narrative that includes a black victim and a white perpetrator? Have you seen social justice activists saying, oh, white women can't even jog without being hunted down justice for Eliza? Now, I don't think 
that we should be seeing those things because I don't think that this crime was connected to race. We have no indication that it was, but we have just as much evidence that her murder had to do with race as we do, say, George Floyd. And yet one was automatically assumed to be about race and the other one no one even questions. And I'm just trying to get you to see through this example how convoluted our conversations are about right and wrong in this country. Justice and injustice, how our insistence upon racializing narratives and not racializing others is making us really undiscerning in our judgment, both in what we say and in who a lot of people vote for. The truth is, it's trendy to say that a police killing a black man is racist, even when we have no proof showing racial motivations. It's not trendy to say that a black man killing a white woman is racist. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to what is popular and what's not. The people you see posting a black square for George Floyd, but barely saying a peep about this or Justine Damon, the white woman murdered point blank by a black police officer a few years ago, simply allow their outrage and compassion to be dictated by whatever social media says is right. And that is not God help us all, all of us. That is not how the people of God should see and respond to the world. The way progressive social justice activists see and respond to the world is not biblical or historically true as a world categorized by white oppressors and non-white oppressed. I promise you, God does not see Eliza as the oppressor and this murderer as oppressed. I promise you, this dude is not let off the hook by God because his grandparents might have lived through Jim Crow. I promise God is not weighing Eliza's or anyone's white privilege when he is deciding whether they are a victim or not. God is not debating whether a black person can be racist because racism is technically prejudice plus power and black people don't have any power. That is a ludicrous, deluded way of thinking, and it is not for those who follow Christ. We serve an impartial God. He does not show favoritism to the rich, to the poor, to the mighty, to the weak, to the black, to the white. He judges righteously. He judges perfectly. He judges between good and evil. He does not calculate your melanin or that of your ancestors in his judgments. Righteousness in this case, as with all murder cases, would be the death penalty. Genesis 9, 6, before Israel, before civilization, the death penalty is demanded by God for murder because of a reason that transcends time and culture and is not negated by Jesus' death and resurrection. And that is because we are made in his image. Death penalty should be the punishment for all capital murder. We should be tough on crime. We should do our best to rehabilitate and reintroduce those who can be rehabilitated and reintroduced. I am for, for example, restoring voting rights to people who have served their sentences and are back in society. I am for doing everything we can to secure employment, even if that is some kind of uh, effective government program. I am not against that. I am for that. I I want people to be rehabilitated, reintroduced, restored when that is possible, when that is feasible, when that is safe. But I am not for soft on crime policies for the sake of so-called superficial equity and deadly social justice. Now, as I said, I hope this man comes to Christ. I hope that he repents. I hope that he's redeemed and that we see him in heaven one day if Eliza is a was a believer and i believe she was that would mean that eliza and her murder would be worshiping their savior together for all of eternity only god can do that as i said earlier only the gospel can do that i mean right now in heaven there are murderers and their victims fully reconciled to god and to each other through christ fully forgiven and complete and whole worshiping together and that's what god can do so what i take from this in addition to just like the 
personal anguish and sadness that I know this community feels and just feeling for them and praying for them personally for God to minister to them. Like I also want us to see something like this and be smart and to think a little bit harder, to think harder politically, to think harder morally, to think harder theologically. All of these, all tragedies in all of these tense political moments should cause us to think a little bit more deeply about what is actually true and about what actually works. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this subject as we dive into some of the criticisms of the queen as um, this evil colonizer. And we're going to ask, is that really true? Is that a justified criticism with our friend, Father Calvin Robinson. We're going to talk about that and much more with him in just a second. But first, let me tell you about our last sponsor of the day, and that is Crowd Health. What if you could put your health care back in your own hands instead of being sold to the highest bidder, politicians, big pharma, health insurance companies make enormous profits at the expense of your health. And that is why Crowd Health works. It's not health insurance. You can see any doctor you want. You just pay the first $500 and submit any bills from there. The Crowd Health community takes care of the rest. No doctor's networks, no huge premiums or deductibles, and best of all, no surprises. This is a game changer in the healthcare in, in the community healthcare industry. Just pay one low monthly total, less than $200 a month for most people. Go to joincrowdhealth.com. Use promo code Allie. That's uh, right now you can get the first six months for just $99 a month with my code. Go to joincrowdhealth.com. Use promo code Allie, joincrowdhealth.com. We've got with us Father Calvin Robinson again. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first, just give me your immediate reaction when you found out first that she, that the queen was seriously ill, that the family was coming to visit her, and then when you found out that she had actually died. I was on, I believe, Megyn Kelly's show at the time of the announcement of the queen being seriously ill. And we were gathering at that time that this really was seriously ill. It was the end of her life. And it's the most difficult interview I've ever done because I don't get nervous doing interviews, but I was really, really anxious because this is someone that we as a nation see as a grandmother figure. You know, she's she's the, the glue, uh, the, the physical embodiment of our constitution. And we've had her on the throne for over 70 years. We don't know anything else. Um, so it's been an interesting time this week. And then, of course, later that day, I was in the newsroom, actually, uh, as we heard that the announcement was coming any moment. And I thought, this is, this is it. And I was supposed to be actually, I was supposed to be on air. And I, I thank God that I wasn't on air at the time because I, I'm relatively new to my ministry. And, I've, I, you know, I've assisted at funerals and I've comforted people mourning uh, for, for other priests and vicars. But I haven't actually lost anyone in my own flock yet and i don't mm. think i would like the responsibility of being that the clerical on the news at the time that it was breaking and, and that that was such a big responsibility that i was thankful that i managed to dodge that actually but then later that day after i'd had the time to compose my thoughts and and, and, and to pray on on the situation i was then on air and able to just provide a sense of witness i think because the reason i've been doing so much media this week in the uk in the us and australia is because everyone's talking about the Queen's legacy. Everyone's talking about 
the history, the historical importance of having someone reign for so long, etc. But no one is really talking about the most important factor, and that is Her Majesty's faith, because Her Majesty's faith in Christ was the, the rocks, the foundations of, of her leaderships, from, from her leadership style to being you know, a servant leader to actually the, the content of her character and well, the content of her speeches and everything about her. She focused on Jesus Christ uh, at the forefront of her life. And I think that really showed in the style of monarch that she was. And I think that's the most important thing uh, for people to hear at a, t- a time like this, especially when we're all suffering a loss, is that there is always hope. And, and that, that hope is through the resurrection, that the resurrection is through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And he said that whoever believes in him, even if you die, you will live. And I think that's a message that people need to hear right now. Yes, I, I know that people in the U.S. and elsewhere understand that she has been a steady figure through all of um, the different, I don't know if you want to call them scandals, but her family um, has endured over the past few decades, but also the turbulence of the U.K. She has remained steadfast and steady and apolitical, but I don't hear, as you said, a lot of people attributing that to her faith in the gospel. And to be honest, that's not really something that I knew. I knew that probably in general, she held to a a Christian faith, but I had really never heard her talk about Jesus until people like you were pointing out that in a lot of her speeches, she used him as an example for morality, uh, for as the center of family life. Can you tell us just a, a little bit more about that? When you're thinking back about her legacy of faith and some of the things that she said, what is it that really stands out to you? Is there a particular speech or a particular quote that comes from her that you think really sums up her faith? I'll give you a couple of examples. So on the year that her father died in 1952, she assumes the position of the queen before she was crowned, of course, because it takes a long time for the ceremony to be planned. Uh, So in the time between her father's death and her coronation, she delivered a message to the people and she said, pray for me that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promise I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. And that one is the what, probably her first public message as the queen, but also the one that stands out to me as the most important because those words pretty much define her life. She did serve him and us as a people, as a commonwealth of nations, but also as, as Brits for the entirety of her life. Just two days before she died, she swore in the new prime minister of the United Kingdom. Like she did not stop working at mm-hmm. all. And that is, that is a true... Um, that's a person who understands duty and service and obligation. And I think it's very clear where she got that from because later on she said, uh, for me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I lead my life. So there, there again, she's backing it up as in this is where she's getting the instructions or the commandments to lead her life, but also the accountability before God. For any leader, I think that's important, but especially okay. for someone as well, high up as the queen. There are very few people in the world who have uh, more accountability than Her Majesty the Queen. So it's important for her to have some accountability too. And that the fact that she recognized that she's accountable to God tells me everything that I need to know about her style. Well, I think that we would all be better off if more politicians, not that she's a politician, but more leaders and representatives believed that they were going to be held accountable to God and that they weren't just accountable to themselves. That would solve a whole lot of problems. Now, you are very familiar with the um, the different kinds of criticisms of the Queen that have 
surfaced over the past few days uh, since her death. Obviously, a lot of these criticisms existed before her death, but for some reason, people feel that at the moment of someone's death, that that is just the right time to level some of the worst criticisms against them that you can imagine. So from a lot of people on the left, it's that she was this vicious imperialist colonizer that presided over the oppression of black and brown people around the world. And then I'm seeing some criticism from people. I don't know if it's on the right, but I don't know, some people somewhere on the political spectrum saying, you know, she was actually not conservative enough or she and her family were representatives of the World Economic Forum. And uh, I don't know, some shady business went on there. She's not what you think. That's maybe a little bit less uh, academic, but I'm seeing some of that criticism online. So kind of what's your response to the people saying, no, 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 the queen wasn't this person that we should be respecting and we shouldn't even be mourning this death? Firstly, it tells me how crass people can be and how tasteless people can be. The fact that, you know, we, ha- we have a mourning period for 10 days. And I think that anyone that's got an element of respect would at least let people mourn, even if you don't respect the queen herself, respect other people and their rights to mourn and grieve uh, her loss. But people that, that can't do that are putting their own political ideologies above their compassion and their humanity. And that shows me that they lack faith. They lack love. They lack Christ in their lives, to be honest with you. A lot of these people, um, especially this, this Dr. Uju and there's, there's uh, Trevor Sinclair, there are a number of people who said some really, really horrible things. I'm talking about high profile people saying things like, I hope she died in excruciating pain. Yes. And I just, honestly can't imagine just so people know, Dr. Uju Anya, she is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. She tweeted, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. And then just to add on to that, may her pain be excruciating. So just so people know, we're not just saying some people. I mean, these are these are reactions that were said by blue check marks professors on Twitter after she died. Absolutely. And the level of, well, I'm, I'm not going to mince my words, the level of evil at play here is, is horrible to see. Wishing death upon anyone is is bad enough, but wishing excruciating pain in their death is just, it's beyond words. I can't contemplate who I would possibly hate enough to feel that way about them. So I I put out a message in response saying, you know, you've clearly got hatred in your heart. I pray that you find peace. Uh, Whatever's bugging you, I I pray you get past it. Uh, Something along those lines. And the response I received as a result of that, I've never, never seen anything like it. You know, I've seen... I've received abuse in my time on social media, as I'm yeah. sure we all have. But the, the racism, the vitriol, oh, yes. and a lot of it comes from African-Americans, actually. And I don't understand yes. why the Queen is such a figurehead for them. But it, it seems to be that they are conflating American racial politics with British politics once again. And it doesn't make any sense. These people calling the Queen imperial or a colonizer or you know the, the, the wording about raping different cultures and stuff is all it's historically incorrect. Her Majesty the Queen came to the throne at the height of an empire, and by the end of it, there was no empire left. So she's the biggest decolonizer in history. Uh, she left behind a legacy of voluntary uh, community spirits. The Commonwealth of Nations is a, is a group that people join uh, voluntarily, and actually a lot of former French colonies have joined the British Commonwealth of Nations because they see the success of the camaraderie of it and it's a great thing it's a great legacy not just not just for trade but for sport and 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 just family 
the true sense of community is a good thing. But to suggest that the queen herself is somehow guilty for the sins of her forebears, again, it's that original sin of whiteness. Just being white makes you guilty of something that your family may or may not have committed in the past. Certain elements of our society need to get over this because yeah. it's toxic, it's divisive, and it's not going to help social cohesion. Yeah. And Her Majesty the Queen was a unifying figure. She brought us all together. She was a figurehead of our nation, not just our nation, but a lot of people around the world. You know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they all have the Queen as their head of state too. And she's the thing that brings us together because other nations don't have a physical embodiment and, you know, I think we've alluded to this before, that in America, you've got your flag, that's something you can identify with. That's great, but it's not the same as a living, breathing person who represents you. And also, our politics at the time, right now, is becoming so divided, you know, between the Democrats, the Republicans, or Labour and the Conservatives. And with each new leader, they come, they go slightly further, not necessarily to the right or the left, but slightly further apart. And having someone who's apolitical, that is the glue holding everything else together, which is what Her Majesty the Queen was. is a, That's the purpose of a constitutional monarchy. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And tell me what you think about King Charles. Some people are worried about him not being as loyal to the interests of England. And perhaps, I think I saw you comment on this, kind of being bought by the World Economic Forum. People are concerned about that. What, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I'm also concerned uh, he is a member or has been a member of the WEF. He is friends with Klaus Schwab. He's, you know, he goes to these events in Davos and mingles with the, the billionaires and the global elites and the influencers. I think it's because he is such an avid supporter of the green agenda. You know, net zero policies are his bread and butter. He's been an environmentalist all his life. Yikes. That is what his main concern is. But I do understand that now that he is king, he he appreciates that he's no longer a prince. He's no longer free to have political opinions. He does have to be apolitical. And he said that he's going to take that role seriously. So I'm going to try and give him the benefit of the doubt as, as much as you can. Try and be charitable uh, and take him at his word. Uh, it is difficult. It really is because we are fighting a global evil. We are fighting a spiritual war. And the WEF has chosen the wrong side in this war. Some would say they are they are the wrong side of this war. So it's difficult to have a, a sovereign that is linked to them, but yeah. I am hoping and praying that he's going to separate himself from that. My other major concern with, with King Charles III is that he talks about this country being a country of multiple faiths and multiple cultures. And yes, it is. And of course, we have to be tolerant of all different faiths and cultures uh, as best we can, but we have to identify that this is a Christian country and this is um, we have a Christian faith, and they are the things that we need to be defending and promoting. And the king, as defender of the faith and supreme governor of the church, should be doing that first before addressing any others. Hmm. Do you have hope that there will ever be another figure as unifying, as steady as Queen Elizabeth? I mean, I, I personally don't think it's probably going to be King Charles, but somewhere down the line. Perhaps, but then again, she is a once-in-a-generation figure. She's broken so many records. Uh, I think she has the second um, longest reign in the world, in the, the entirety of history. Uh, the only person who reigned longer than her was, was King Louis, and that's just because he came to the throne as a baby. Uh, so I, I think we're all going to look back at some point in the future and think that the Elizabeth, Elizabethan period was special. It was different. I don't think we'll get anyone like her. Uh, doesn't mean we won't get other good leaders, and I think I think Prince William is showing signs of potentially being a good king, and and K 
Kate's or Catherine is looking like a good queen, but they too have some links that concern me. So uh, let's see how they've managed to separate themselves from the political life and, and focus on uh, service and duty. Yeah, let's hope for the best, for sure. And obviously, we continue to pray for our leaders, no matter who they are, what their political affiliations are. And God is sovereign, so I do hope the best. I hope the best for the leadership of the UK, just like I do here. Okay, I want to talk a little bit. We don't have too much time, but because I saw you tweet about this a few weeks ago, and because it seems really important, I want to hear um, I want to hear a little bit more about the Rotherham I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Child sexual exploitation scandal. You tweeted on August 21st, recent report estimates over 1,400 children were sexually abused in Rotherham in the past decade. How has the government awarded Rotherham 1.8 million pounds in the title of UK's first children's capital of culture? So what in the world is happening here? Good question. The problem with Rotherham, and it's not just in Rotherham, there are many cities and towns around the UK Uh, Telford, Rochdale, there are plenty of them where we've had, I'm not going to call them, the press calls them grooming gang scandals. They are Pakistani Muslim gang rapists. And what they do is they take young white girls and they rape them and pass them around and use them as a novelty. And it it is cultural. It is disgusting. But the worst thing about it is that it's been swept under the rug by the police who have questioned these girls and said, you know, is this a lifestyle choice? Are you a child prostitute? As if that's a thing. Uh, did you wow. consent? A young, wow. a, a child cannot consent to sex. Yeah. By definition, it is rape. So this is from the police. And then we've got the council above the police covering it up. We've got the councillors, the, the, the um, safeguarding people who are supposed to be looking out for young girls, covering it up. And then it goes all the way up to the government, the Labour government and the Conservative government, both covering it up. And it seems to me that the the main issue was that they were petrified that people would find out that these are Pakistani Muslims that are committing these atrocities because they don't want a race war in this country. So for the sake of diversity, they've sacrificed the lives of young white girls, young British white girls. And I, I think it's a disgusting evil that needs to be talked about more. But even the press is afraid of touching this topic, which is why I talk about it as much as I can. But even I'm having trouble so, uh, raising this subject, A, because I'm finding it difficult to get people to talk about it, but B, because people are saying, how dare you address this issue when you're a member of the clergy? Have you seen what the the church has done in history? And it's like, well, yes, I have. That's also evil. That Any rape of children is evil. Any abuse of children is evil. And it all needs to be addressed. However... Yeah. The scandals in the church have had so much attention because people want to tear down the church. They've had a lot of attention. These young girls in Rotherham, Telford, Rochdale, etc., have had no publicity because people don't want to talk about it. That's why I'm talking about this issue in particular. Yes, they are more concerned with being called Islamic, uh, Islamophobic than they are being complicit in child rape. And that's when you know that we have completely subverted morality and we have completely messed up our priorities when it is worse to be perceived as a bigot than it is to allow and enable the rape of children. And kind of all of this conversation that we're talking about, some of the criticisms of the queen and then this cover-up of this rape because these men are Muslim, I mean, it goes back to this worldview in which all white people are oppressors, all non-white people are oppressed, and therefore any scenario in when an, in which a non-white person happens to be perpetrating something evil against a white person, we're supposed to brush it under 
the rock because it's impossible, I guess, for a non-white person to be an oppressor. And that just goes to show how toxic and how dangerous and even how deadly this worldview can be and how unjust it can be because it disallows us from being able to see things as they are. It disallows us from being able to see good and evil as they really exist. Absolutely. And I'm mixed race. So I've got a white parent and a black parent, and I've seen them both be the victims of racism uh, throughout my life. And I've been a victim of racism from both white people and black people. In fact, at the moment in my adult life, it's more often than not black people who are racist towards me. So I can attest to the fact that anyone can be racist and anyone can be the victim of racism. And I cannot say that enough because this idea that only white people are racist and white people are naturally oppressors and only black people are the victims of racism and therefore they have to live in this mentality of victimhood is not helpful for anyone. It's not helpful to white people. It's not helpful to black people. Black people are the people keeping other black people down with this mentality. Mentality. If you tell someone often enough that they are a victim, they will start to believe it. If you tell them often enough that they will never achieve anything in life, they will start to believe it. And what's worse than that is that when a black person achieves success, other black people try to drag them down by calling them white or saying they're, they are somehow a traitor, an Uncle Tom, uh, all these a coon, all of these horrible things, as if success is somehow a trait of whiteness. And they don't see the irony of their ways. These so-called uh, racial justice warriors are actual racial grievance peddlers. That's what they're yeah. doing. And it's disgusting. And it's breaking down our way of life. Uh, but the problem is I don't see how we fight back because white people can't stand up and say, actually, I'm okay. I feel okay being white because they'll be seen as, you know, oppressors and white superiority. And black people or mixed people like myself can't stand up and say, well, actually, there's nothing wrong being white or brown or whatever. It doesn't matter because we'll be accused of being coons, Uncle Toms and race bait, race traitors. So no, there is no way to win this. Yeah. Well, I agree with you that a lot of people are afraid of just standing up and saying, you know, what, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what you call me. It is what it is. But the more people that do the more you can kind of push those people to the margins. I mean, I've seen what you've been called. I've seen what you've been called simply for defending the queen. I have some of the tweets in this document. I can't even read them because they're so awful. Simply because you have a particular opinion, you are considered some kind of traitor in the same way that I'm considered a traitor for not being for abortion. I'm a traitor to my uh, gender. These people are extremely totalitarian and authoritarian when it comes to... Um, opinions. And that's why I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for um uh, I'm thankful that you do push back against the homogeny and that you do push back against those who say that you're not allowed to have that opinion. Uh, one final thing, what are your thoughts on Liz Truss? Good, bad? <laughs> um, I'm I'm holding my judgment. She's far too liberal for me, uh, but we have a strong conservative government with a strong majority, so it would be possible for her to get a lot done. And I think she wants to prove herself. So I'm hoping that she'll use that to her, her advantage and push through a load of conservative policies to say, look, I was a Tory and I did get some stuff done. So I'm hoping and praying she'll get rid of all this wokeness and she'll take us back to good old fashioned British values. But we'll wait and see. Hmm, I pray so. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate it. Ali, anytime. God bless you.